Good morning. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills. Although, uh, given our hybrid reality, I have been referring to myself as a metaverse pastor, and I kind of like the sound of that. And uh, as a metaverse pastor, you're familiar with the Apostle Paul from the New Testament. He, uh, his mission was to unify the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And I feel like as a metaverse pastor, my mission is to unify the circuitized and the uncircuitized. So <laughs> this concludes the comedy portion of the show, I, I promise. No, I can't promise that, but... Um, well, hey, thank you so much for coming out in the cold. Not as cold as it was yesterday. Thanks for coming out and being with us. I, I just love seeing all these familiar faces. Some of you I haven't seen in a while. There's a lot of flannels here. I was in Florida for a little while. There's a lot more flannels here than down there. And thank you for joining online as well. Uh, I, I, I missed the YouTube chat during the sermon. Unfortunately, I can't do that while I'm actually giving the sermon. I thought about maybe I could, but I don't think I could pull it off. So, uh, listen, last week, Greg kicked off a new series that we are calling Treasure Hunters. And it's looking at Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24, where uh, Jesus talks about where our treasure is. And so it has to do with the things that we value and money and things like that. And last week, Greg really laid a great foundation for this series, talking about fasting and the role that fasting plays in understanding our desires and our true motives and how all of that relates to discipleship. And so I encourage you, if you haven't seen that yet, definitely check that out. Uh, That's a great kickoff to the series. Today, I am looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23 in a sermon that I have entitled, What Are You Looking At? Although not in that tone, really. The sermon doesn't really fit that tone, but I kind of hoped that it would, but it it didn't. So we'll see. Maybe you'll disagree. I don't know. But uh, I need my reading glasses here. Uh, Matthew 6, verses 22 to 23 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, first of all, what the heck is Jesus talking about? Being The eye being a lamp of the body? Is Jesus actually saying that our eyes glow with light? Like we have light beams coming out of our eyes? Yeah, <laughs> Jesus is actually saying that. Uh, this is a very common understanding of vision in the first century and before the first century. It goes all the way back to Plato. Plato actually said that we have eye rays that shoot out of our eyes, almost like a superhero. So when we focus on something, that's because our eye rays are hitting it. And that's, that was the, the understanding of vision back then. And Jesus is using this understanding of vision in his teaching. This raises an issue for me. Uh, it, it raises a, a troubling question and that I've had to wrestle with. And that is this. If Jesus is who the gospels say he is, that he is God incarnate, What does it mean that Jesus doesn't understand how the eye works? Like you can ask any seventh grader, how does the eye work? And they'll tell you that it has to do with light going into the eye, not coming out of the eye, right? So what does this mean that I am dedicating my life to a guy who says he's God who doesn't even know how the eye works? Well, I think there's a a resolution to this. Jesus is not a bad ophthalmologist. He... There's a reason why I think this all makes sense and I think it's actually ultimately 
glorious. And I'm going to share three of these. I have a few more, but I had, to, I had to cut them. So the first reason is this. When you look at this passage, it's pretty clear that Jesus is not teaching science. He's not doing a scientific education. He's making a spiritual point based on this rudimentary understanding of seeing. Uh, really, what God is doing here with Jesus' understanding of seeing, I think, is actually a beautiful thing. Uh, God is accommodating the common understanding of seeing at the time to teach this greater point. Greg talks a lot about this in his book, Inspired Imperfection, and he goes into a lot more detail than that. So if this is cool to you, and I think it should be, <laughs> check out that book because uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, the fact is, is that God ultimately, he doesn't care what his disciples know about the eye. He just doesn't care. But he cares deeply what his disciples understand about the heart. And that's what the teaching is about. The second point is it doesn't really matter what Jesus understands about the eye. It matters mostly what the audience understands about the eye. Uh, so, and I really recognized this in full clarity uh, a couple weeks ago when I was in Florida. I think much better in Florida. Let me just say that uh, also. But we were in Florida, Barbara and I, for a while. We were working down there, and she invited her friend Annette down to join us for a couple of days. And just as a public service announcement, let me just say this. Annette is a mean cribbage player, okay? She comes in all fun and giggles, but she is ruthless, and I will be avenged. I just want to say that public service announcement. Uh, no, she's so fun, and she's a really good cribbage player, uh, to my chagrin. I, I have not beaten her yet. Anyway, uh, we decided we're in Florida, we need to go to the beach. And so we decided we're going to go to the beach. I didn't want to drive there and park because it's a hassle, it costs money. So I said, Annette, why don't you just use your Android, get an Uber, and then we'll just Venmo you some money. And we all just kind of sat there for a moment looking at each other and we realized that's a really weird sentence. Can you imagine saying that sentence 30 years ago? Could you use your Uber to get, could you use your, I can't even say it right. Can you use your Android to get an Uber and we'll Venmo you some money? People would look at you like, what planet are you from? What are you, do you need help? You know, uh, blink your eyes if you're in trouble. I mean, they would say, who knows what they would say, but it's just such an odd sentence. And so too, can you imagine Jesus calling his disciples together and saying, children, the eye is the biological mechanism that causes uh, light to transfer into neurological signals, which goes along the optic chiasm that goes to the occipital lobe, which is processed in the front. No, he wouldn't say all of that. Even if he understood how the eye worked, his disciples wouldn't know how the eye worked, and they would just be clueless. Uh, Jesus might as well say, hey, Peter, can you use your phone to get us an Uber and I'll Venmo you a Bitcoin? I mean, it just, it wouldn't mean anything to them. And so as a good teacher, Jesus taught to his audience based on what they know, not based on God's omniscience or anything like that. And then the third thing, and this is sort of the basis of the rest of the sermon, is uh, this. <laughs> I think ultimately Jesus was right the whole time. I think that Jesus was right about the eye. Even though it seems wildly variant from what we know about the eye, I think that there, there was something very right about his teaching about the eye itself. Not that we shoot eye rays out of our head. Uh, not like that. Uh, but, that'd be nice. It'd be kind of cool to do that. But unfortunately, that's not the case. However, what's right about his teaching about the eye is that it is absolutely true that when we see things, there are two parts of seeing things. There's the object that we're seeing, and then there's this huge truckload of luggage of stuff that we bring to the scene event. Um, and as I was thinking about this on the way home, driving home from Florida, 
You know, it's weird. I just, I kept getting this name. Hermann von Helmholtz kept coming in my head. And it's a fun name to say. Maybe that's part of why I kept thinking of it. But I knew that he had something to do with the eye. And I knew he was from the 19th century. And I kept thinking of Hermann von Helmholtz. And when I got home, I started looking through my graduate school notes. And there it was. Right in my notes. I took such good notes. Uh, It says this. Helmholtz says, colon, seeing or sensing is not the same thing as perceiving. That's it. Seeing is not the same thing as perceiving. They're two totally different things. Uh, They're related, but they're different. What the eye does underdetermines what we perceive. Or another way to say it, you can have perfect vision and still have imperfect perception. Uh, Now, a a radical kind of rare example of this, doctors call it prosopognosia, which is face blindness. And there's a book by Oliver Sacks called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. It's a very famous book. And he talks about this uh, disorder. And it's usually called from, uh, it's caused from a, a head wound, a brain injury. And what it is is that a person could come in and you can see them perfect with 20-20 vision and not know who they are. Even if it's your wife, your dad, your kid, you just don't, you don't recognize them. If that same person calls you on the phone, you know exactly who it is. But you can't recognize them by looking at them. That's face blindness. That's, that shows how seeing is different than perceiving. Now that's a really rare example. But what I want to argue is that this happens to all of us all the time on a much more general uh, less extreme level. Each of us, we all carry around this kind of web of, of biases that we apply to every situation that we're in. And there's a ton of these, but I'll just give you a couple examples. One is an in-group bias, and we all fall victim to this. So like if you watch a Vikings game, we all know that the referees are a lot harder on the Vikings than they are on the Packers. I mean, the Packers get away with everything. They're holding, they're cheating. I mean, they're all just cheats, right? And the refs don't even blow the whistle. They don't throw a flag. Ah, see, that's an in-group bias. It's, it's not, it's hard to even say, but it's not true. <laughs> it's not true, Dan. <laughs> the refs are fair, Dan. In, whoops, in reality, the refs are fair. Uh, they, they really are. It's just that we tend to bias how we interpret that. Um, Another one, and this gets us all too, is the anchoring bias. So you, you experience this if you ever go to Best Buy and you look at all the TVs that they have. And if you're like me, you can't help but look at these big, massive TVs. They're like $6,000. And they're just enormous and they're beautiful. And you have to think, you know, I mean, maybe if I had 30,000 square feet, I could maybe find a place for that like above the Olympic pool or something. You know, it's just massive. And you think, who buys these things? And the answer is nobody. Nobody buys those. They're not meant to sell. Maybe they might sell one year. I don't know. But that's it, not what they're there for. What they're there for is to get people to think that the $1,200 TVs are a really good deal. And, and so what these places found is that they were selling TVs for $900, but they could sell the same TV for $1,200 if they put a five dollars or a $6,000 TV right next to it. That's the anchoring bias, and, and it affects us all. Um, but the narratives, too, is not just biases. We also carry stories about things that affect how we perceive the world. Uh, Jessica Valenti has a book, and it's sort of a crass title, but it's such an important uh, insight. It's called, He is a Stud, She is a Slut. 
And she talks about gender biases and the double standards that people experience. And what she says is that you can take a a female who uh, has multiple sexual partners and she will get called really nasty names. Like really, really, really bad names. But if you take a guy who does the exact same behavior, so you're looking at with your eyes the exact same behaviors, but guys will be called things like stud or um, player or ladies man, things that are very positive. And, and that narrative about gender affects how we perceive the exact same thing that we're seeing. And that affects us all. And it's not just gender. I mean, it's all sorts of stuff. Even like something as simple as food. <laughs> Julie Exline has this study. It's one of my favorite studies. She has a person eating oatmeal, okay? And it's, it's at like the mall or at a university, someplace busy. And they're eating the oatmeal. And then the researcher will ask strangers who are walking by, hey, do you see that uh, person over there eating oatmeal? What's, what do you think that person is like? And they'll say things like, oh, well, that person seems intelligent, uh, moral, um, responsible, maybe a little high strung, uh, probably uninteresting. <laughs> Just because they're eating the oatmeal, you know? Then uh, what Julie and her team does is they swap out the oatmeal and put a slice of pecan pie with a big dab of whipped cream on top. Then they ask people, hey, what do you think that person is like over there? What what, what are they like? Totally different answers just because they're eating pie instead of oatmeal. They'll say things like, oh, they seem down to earth. They seem humorous or fun uh, or maybe a little irresponsible. (laughs) That's what they'll say. So we have narratives even about like the things that we eat. But it's not just narratives, it's not just biases, it's also the circumstances that we're in. It's also our life circumstances. Uh, John Cassiopo has a study on loneliness that's just really fascinating. He found that lonely people will detect risks in their environment twice as fast as people who are not lonely. And the reason for that, he hypothesizes, is that lonely people tend to not trust other people. They tend to be hypervigilant. And so that hypervigilance makes them aware of risks. So they're all seeing the same situation, but one person is perceiving totally different things. And there are just endless examples of this. There's how our assumptions, our values, our expectations, the traumas that we've experienced, the attitudes that we have, our personal history, all of this comes in to shape how we see things. But the point to all of this is that there was something very right about what Jesus said. What we see out there has a lot to do with what we project from in here. Uh, We see according to our heart a lot of times. Or the way that Jesus put it, the eye is the lamp of the body. It's the lamp of the self. Um, He also says in Matthew 15.11, this is a very similar teaching to Matthew 15.11, where he says that, look, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. This is a very similar teaching to that. It's what's what's in your heart that shapes your experience, that shapes your perception, that shapes your future. Now, Jesus goes on to say that, Yes, the eye is the lamp of the body, but more than that, how we shine our light really matters in a profound way. Uh, he says this, if, if we pull the verse back up. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What does that mean? What does that mean, that your body will be full of light or darkness? How do we know which is healthy and which is unhealthy? in how we shine our light. Uh, 
what I did is I, I tried to do what a lot of scholars, you know, this is, I guess I'm making it sound like I'm some clever guy. You know what I did, as if everybody doesn't do this, but this is what I did. I looked at the original language and I looked at how that language was used in some of the other uh, parts of the scriptures. And so what you find is when you look at the original language of this verse, it gets kind of strange. It's, it's, a, it's a very strange sort of um, translation. In the original language, so, so we say unhealthy eye, but in the original language it says evil eye. <laughs> and I think this is where we get the, you know, I gave him the evil eye. I think that's, this is where this comes from. Uh, but this idea of evil eye, it's used in multiple places in the scripture. I'm going to share one example with you found in Matthew 20. And I'm not going to read this whole thing. Uh, I just want to focus on one verse in this story. But the story is, it's the story of the parable of the vineyard workers. And this vineyard owner, he needs some help. He sees a bunch of people standing around. And so he says to them, hey, listen, I'll give you a denarius if you come and join me and work in my vineyard all day. And they're like, yeah, sure, that's great. So they come in and they work. As the day is winding down, there's just a couple hours left, he still has a lot of work to do. And he, he sees more people standing around. He's like, hey, listen, I'll give you a denarius if you come and help for the rest of the day. And so they, yeah, we'll do that. They come and they help. At the end of the day, he pays everybody a denarius. Now, the people who are there from 8 a.m., they're like, wait a minute, hold on a second, wait a minute. We were here all day, and you're paying them the same. They came at the last minute, and they get the same pay as us? And this is how Jesus responds in verse 15. He says, friend, do you have, are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? That's what the vineyard worker says. Literally, that the literal language there says this, do you have an evil eye because I am good? So hold that for a minute. Uh, now look at Proverbs 22.9, which says really simply, he who is generous will be blessed. The original language there says, those with a good eye will be blessed. And that's in the Hebrew and in the Greek. It's the Greek uh, translation. It's, those with a good eye will be blessed. So, and that's true of all of the uses of these word combinations. That's how it's used. And so when you collect all of those, what you find is that an evil eye is a person who looks at the world through envy, through greed, through paranoia, through stinginess, through selfishness. And a person who looks at the world through a good eye will, will see the world more generously. They will see the world more sharing. They'll try to build others up. They'll try to encourage. They think more community. And so it's a radically different way of looking at the world. And so the question in this teaching that is implied by Jesus is, which eye are you developing in your life? Are you developing a good eye or are you developing an evil eye? And the teaching implies, the fact that Jesus is asking this question and teaching this, implies that we have some say-so over this. We have some say-so over which kind of eye we see the world with. Now that by itself, I think uh, it, it's, it's worth reflecting on and I think that could be very valuable. But I, I, I really think that when you zoom out from this teaching, man, this teaching takes on a whole life of its own when you look at it in context. And so I just want to take the time to read the context and then discuss how I think it relates to that. So if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, 
Jesus says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be healthy or will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff, but I just want to focus on a couple things. The first thing is that Jesus' teaching about the eye being a lamp of the body falls between two warnings. And I think that the warnings are related to the teaching that he has about the eye. The first warning is we have to be very careful what we treasure. Because there's some things that look like treasures that are actually ultimately worthless. And the second warning is that if you want to pursue the treasures of the kingdom of God, that can't be a part-time thing. That can't be a hobby. It can't be something that you'll do in your retirement. It can't be a a side hustle uh, because it's got to be something that you devote yourself to. It's something that is a long process. It's, it's, It's a long journey. It's a path that goes in a radically polemic different way than the path for the treasures of the world. And so it's not something you can do part time. It's got to be a part of the core of your heart. Um, I really think that from the beginning to the end, I believe that the Bible is an investment book. (laughs) I, I do. I think that it's an investment book, but not just about money. It's not like how to get rich on the stock market or anything like that. Rather, it it really is largely about, and discipleship is largely about, how are we investing our assets? How are we investing, and I don't just mean money, but it includes money, but how are we investing our intelligence? How are we investing our time? How are we investing our sense of humor? Maybe our looks, maybe um, our interest, our attention. How are we investing these things? The Bible is largely about that. And what Jesus is teaching here is that there's one path of investment that leads to profound value and meaning. And there's another path of investment that's very seductive that leads to spoil, decay, and ultimately it just disappears into a wind. And the problem, of course, is that all of us so often we chase the wind. <laughs> we chase that wind with our money, with our time, with our interests. And, and the question I want to wrestle with a little bit here is, why do we do that? Why do we chase a, a dumb investment? Um, and I think part of it is because we think that the wind has value. We really do. We think that there's treasure there. And so we chase it. And part of the reason why we think that the wind has value is because, yeah, for sure, part of it is because there are things out there that look alluring to us. The world offers us a lot of alluring things in and of itself. It just looks good. But I think what Jesus is teaching is that a bigger part of why we chase the wind and a bigger part of why we think there's value out there is because our lamp is, is bad and it shines a warped light. And we shine this warped light on things and they look a lot more valuable than they really are. We end up overvaluing dumb things. And that, by the way, is what idolatry is. Idolatry is just another name for profoundly stupid overvaluation of things that are not godly. And that's what we do. We shine this warped light and we think that it's something that it's not. 
but it's the idolizing that's the real problem here. It's the light that we're shining that is the bigger problem, not necessarily the object that we're looking at out there. Uh, for instance, now I got uh, three examples of how I think this could happen. And a lot of times, the, the object that we're idolizing, it comes from something that's really good. In fact, really, if you think about it, Evil can't be a thing in and of itself. It always has to be a deprivation of something good. It always has to be a perversion of something good. And that's absolutely the case with all of the idols in our life, I believe. So for instance, God made us to be in relationship. God made us for connection. And that's a good thing. And we want to be liked. That's part of being in a good relationship is that you're liked. That's a good thing. But we can start to look at that with our evil eye. (laughs) And we can want to be liked on a whole nother level we can uh, kind of like lose control over wanting to be liked. Being liked can become sort of an idol for us. And we end up trying to decorate our lives with things that we think society wants to see in us. That's how this good thing through our evil eye can totally decompensate. Or security is another one. We want security. We need to have security. And God wants us to be secure. And so much of the teaching in the Bible is about security and uh, sharing with those who are insecure and helping those who are insecure. That's a really good thing. But we can look at that in our lives with our evil eye and it can all fall apart. Uh, instead of just wanting security, it can get out of hand. We, we, our eyes go bad. We start to hoard things just in case, just to be safe. You know, that way I don't, I don't have to worry about it if I have a little bit more, then I don't have to worry. And, and what happens is that the worry remains. And this fear grows, despite the fact that we're hoarding things. And so we end up seeing more danger to justify the things that we're hoarding. And we see more danger than is actually there. In the same way that when I look at a, a football game, I think the refs are favoring the opponent. I mean, it's just, I'm seeing things that are not really there. And that's how, in fact, God knew this, that we have this tendency. Early on in God's story, the Israelites were out in the desert. He promised them, listen, I'm gonna give you manna every day. You don't have to worry about food. Every day when you wake up, you'll have all the manna that you, that you want. But they were worried. But what if he forgets? <laughs> what if tomorrow there isn't any manna? And so they started hoarding because they started to look at it through their evil eye. And it did not go well for them. The third example I share, just because I'm most guilty of this one more than any, and it's this. It has to do with our autonomy. God made us to be our own people, to be, in, to be independent people. Uh, but we, we think about that through an evil eye. And we get duped into something that looks a lot like autonomy, but is different, and that is self-sufficiency. And uh, we, we don't want to rely on others for anything. We want to be autonomous units who are totally independent and don't need anybody else. Maybe it's because we've been hurt by others and we don't trust others. I'm sure trauma plays a big role in that for sure. But we want enough wealth where we don't even have to interact with others. This is a very, uh, I don't know, I, I hear this. There's a couple things in this sermon already where I'm like, I don't know if I should say that, but this is what I've heard it said and I can't think of a better way to say it. Uh, it's F-U money is what I've been told. It's, it's F-U money where you have so much wealth and so much riches that you don't have to care what other people say. Can you hear the hostility toward other people in that phrase, F-U money? It's not just about the money. It's also about the attitude toward other people. I don't need you. Look at what I have. I have this. I don't need you. 
that, that, that vitriol that's built into that, that's when you know that it's become an idol and you have been led by your evil eye. And I also know that this is me. <laughs> the, more than any of these other things, this is one that I fall victim to. And, and, and let me just say that I love people. I really do. And I even like people. <laughs> Mostly. Most of the time. But sometimes... I, I get these feelings like I don't like people. And strangely, and maybe you can relate to this, the better I think I'm getting at loving people, a lot of times the more I struggle to like them. I don't know what it is. But sometimes I get in these tantrum kind of pouty fits where I just, I don't like people. And, and it's just, you know, they're judging and the, the tribalism and the uh, watching for flaws and waiting to pounce and trying to humiliate people who disagree with them and all that stuff. It's just so gross. And you know what I do when I get that, that kind of tantrum-y, kind of pouty feeling? It's so strange, but I start fantasizing about catamarans. <laughs> and a catamaran is basically like a, a pontoon-looking mini-yacht, is what it is. And with this catamaran, you can go out on the ocean far away from people. And I think about this. I think about putting the little floaty muscles on and just swimming out there, you know? <laughs> And as far as the eye can see, there's nobody else there. And I've got my little catamaran. I've got my floaty muscles. And it's just this beautiful thing. And here's the thing, too, is they have solar-powered catamarans. I don't even have to go back for fuel. I mean, I can just be away from people forever. It costs about $5 million. So as an Anabaptist preacher, I probably won't ever achieve this. Uh, But if I had the money, there are times when... I fear that my heart would compel me to pursue that. And, and the, the fact is, is that my animosity or my pouty kind of tantrum about people, this would solve the problem. In a very pragmatic, thin sort of way, it would solve the problem. I would finally have a place where I can be alone. Now, of course, all of this comes from looking at it through an evil eye. And so there's a greater cost that I'm not seeing. There's nothing wrong with the yacht, by the way. The the boat is fine. It's me. I'm the problem. It's my evil eye that's the problem. Because what's happening is that even though I would be in this luxurious isolation and I know that I would enjoy it, I know also that God didn't make me for that. God made me to be in relationship. God calls me into the body of Christ. That's where I can dwell and that's where I can thrive on the deepest level is when I'm connected to the body of Christ. God doesn't want me to run away. He doesn't want me to run away. All throughout the scripture, the Apostle Paul and the disciples teach multiple times in multiple ways to not run away. The Apostle Paul says, be patient with all. Don't abandon all. That's not what he says. He says to tolerate one another, to reconcile with one another, to worship with others, to build one another up, to forgive one another, not to forget one another. And I can't do any of that stuff if I'm somewhere out on a dumb boat in the Florida Keys. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm not building up those skills. I'm not building those relationships and those bonds. It's one or the other. They compete. You can't serve both masters. They're two totally different paths. Yes, God wants me to be autonomous, but he wants me to be autonomous in relationship. In summary, let me just say this. I really think the Bible is an investment book. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that the evil eye will warp how we perceive everything and it will always, always, always lead to really dumb investments. 
The good eye will lead to good investments and to profound treasure. I think that uh, discipleship is largely a process of developing this good eye. And that requires a process of, I think, knowing Jesus more and more and also knowing ourselves more and more. Knowing Jesus, knowing ourselves. Knowing Jesus, knowing ourselves. We have to center Jesus and put Jesus in the center as our one true teacher, Matthew tells us. We're never gonna grow if we just focus on ourselves. We're just gonna keep reinforcing ourselves. We have to have something else to compare ourselves to. We need Jesus at the center. But at the same time, uh, even with Jesus at the center, we also have to know ourselves because we're never going to grow and change if we don't know who we are and where we are at. That was Peter's problem. Over and over and over again, Peter kept thinking that he was something that he wasn't. He thought that, I will stay with you, Lord, until the end. Well, Peter, no, you won't. You don't understand yourself. Peter jumps out of the boat. I can walk on water with Jesus because my faith is great. Jesus says, Peter, your faith is not as great as you think it is. Peter didn't know himself, and he did eventually. Eventually, he did learn about himself, but that's an important part of the process, to know more about Jesus and to know more about ourselves. In conclusion, I just want to reflect on this question because we have to know what the point of all of this is. Any investment, we have to know what the return on that investment is. What is the point of all this? Or another way of asking the question, what is the treasure of the kingdom? What is this great treasure that I am devoting myself on this path toward? Now, of course, the forgiveness of sins is part of the good news of the New Testament. It's part of the the Christian good news. And of course, eternal life is also this great promise that we've been given, and that's part of the good news, and that's definitely part of the treasure. Most people, or I don't want to say most, but many Christians stop there. That's kind of what the good news is. You're forgiven, and you get to go to heaven. And I think that's really sad because I think that is just profoundly incomplete of the treasure that God has for us if we pursue him. I mean, that's just like the movie trailer. And this is a long movie with lots of great stuff. And that's just the silly little teaser trailer. Uh, I think there's a lot more. In fact, there's kind of too much more because there's so much more to the treasure that it's really hard to articulate even. Um, it's, it's partly hard to articulate because there's so much of it and it's so deep. But it's also hard to articulate because it's not like other treasures that are out there. It's rather a treasure that we find in here. It's a treasure, Greg said this last week, the treasure is the character that you develop in your relationship with God. And I think there's something really right about that. The treasure is something that we already have inside. We just don't know it at different levels. We, can, we access it, we, we, we get at that treasure layer by layer. And, and, uh, and it's profound. It's, it's sort of like this self-referential reality of living in God's love. It's the self-referential reality of living as we are designed to live, pouring God's love out for other people. It's kind of like asking the question, why is breathing good? Well, breathing is good because I need to breathe to live. Okay, well, why is living good? It's a really hard question to answer because it just feels like it's meant to be. 
And so too, part of the treasure of the kingdom of God is just living how we were meant to live. And so often, the treasures of the world, the principalities and powers, the systems that we are born into keep us from living the way that we were meant to live. And so discipleship is largely retrieving that treasure that we've had inside, and that's a big part of it. But still, I know that's horribly ambiguous. Uh, And and as a writer, I feel some shame. Like I should be able to describe it even better. And uh, so I'm going to just do a little bit more just to see if I can get at some more dimensions of this. And that's what it is. It's it's like a diamond with many cuts and there's just so many dimensions to it. And and so I believe that when you, the more we look upon the world with our good eye, the more we start to realize how precious the kingdom of God is, especially as we relate it to the treasures of the world. And we know know the the treasures of the world and how that feels. We know that in this world, we always have to prove ourselves. Now, we don't say that. What we say is that we have to add value. We say things like that. Are you adding value? I'm adding value. Are you adding value? Are you getting credit for the things that you did? You better get credit for what you did. Why do you have to get credit? Why are we obsessed with getting credit? Because we always have to be adding value. And it's not enough to just add value. We have to keep adding value. We have to refresh that value because what we did two months ago doesn't matter today. We have to keep proving our worth. That's the kingdom of the world. That's the path toward worldly treasures. The path toward God is based on a whole different metaphysical reality. The path toward God starts with the assumption that you already have infinite worth. The more you live and the more you grow down that path, the more you realize that you don't have to hustle all the time to prove yourself to others. You can just dwell in the infinite value that you already have, good enough, loved by God. There are layers and layers to this. And, and even when you embrace that truth, you'll find that you'll get these kind of slow motion, gradual epiphanies where you'll realize that truth on deeper and deeper levels and it feels beautiful. And sometimes it might be when you're reading the scripture and there's this silly verse that isn't supposed to be emotional, but all of a sudden you start crying about it anyway. Or you see a, a bird land on a snowy tree and for some reason you feel blessed by God and you don't understand why. It's just a bird on a tree but all of a sudden you get emotional. It can happen like that in these kind of layers where it becomes this inner treasure and it is hard to explain but when you see how it's contrasted with the world it becomes a little more obvious. Or, here's another one. When we chase the treasures of the world what we find is that we have to kind of buy into the system of the world in order to pursue those treasures aggressively. And unfortunately the world is full of chaos and the world is harassed and so when we invest ourselves in the world a lot of times we bind our heart with that world and so what we end up feeling is we end up feeling our hearts our spirits our moods get yanked up and down and side to side and all over the place based on the whims of circumstance based on the luck of the system but as we go down the path of pursuing the treasures of heaven We are pursuing an unchanging God whose love is steadfast and he has always been love and he has always been good and he has always loved his creation and pursued us. And we find that the more we pursue that, the more we start to stabilize inside. We become immune to the storm around us. We can stand content against whatever circumstance. I think the more that we look upon the world with the good eye like this, the more hope I think that we have to find the treasure that the Apostle Paul found. And, and this just, I love this, this verse. This is Philippians 4.12 and he says this, 
I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. That is treasure. To be content in any situation, that's treasure. That's power. That's what that is. That, that's real wealth, where it doesn't matter what happens, I have this contentment. I think that's what the good eye ultimately leads to. Now, fostering this good eye, there's a lot to it. Learning about Jesus, learning about ourselves, living in community, all of these things, reading the scriptures. But also a big part of it is uh, taking communion. Uh, I think that um, one of the ways that Jesus' disciples fostered this good eye is that they uh, regularly took communion. And we're going to do that here today. And so right now I'm just calling the, the worship team up and we're going to have some music uh, while we do this. But Jesus introduced communion during the Last Supper. And you're familiar with the Last Supper. That's the painting where they're all on the same side of the table for some reason. That's the Last Supper. And this is where he introduced this idea of communion. That Last Supper meal was actually a Passover meal. Uh, A Passover meal is a Jewish celebration of everything that God has done and Jews celebrate Passover regularly. And Jesus is appropriating this Passover meal into this new thing called communion. And, And in the same way that the Passover meal reflected on everything that Yahweh had done for Israel, Christians are going to take the communion meal to remember everything that Jesus has done for us. And so when we take communion together, we remember together what Jesus has done. And we also acknowledge and celebrate together what Jesus is doing in our lives now. And finally, we anticipate with hope what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to fulfill his promises to us in the future. When we take communion together, We really are um, participating in our covenant with God together. And so for that reason, it's a sacred act. And we're doing something very precious and sacred. If you are a disciple of Jesus, please participate. If you are not a disciple, but maybe you want to be, or maybe you're just exhausted from chasing wind and you want to be a treasure hunter, then please join us and tell us about it. At this time, go and get your elements, and they can be whatever. It can be root beer and a hot dog bun. It doesn't have, there's nothing special about the elements. What's sacred here is what the gesture of our heart is. That's what's sacred. It's not the substance of the bread or the wine. So at this time, go and get that, and, um, and we will take communion together in just a, a few moments. I apologize. I didn't tell people where the tables were, but it looks like you figured it out, so I'm, I'm very happy about that. This is, And I got to share this also. This is my first time leading communion, and it is such an honor, and I feel very blessed to be able to do this. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, This bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. So when you come together and eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Then he raised the little plastic cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant, unchanging and solid. It's the path that doesn't whip you around and move your heart up and down and exhaust you. It's the everlasting covenant of God's everlasting love. So when you take the cup and drink it together, do so in remembrance of me, the blood that is shed for you.
Thank you for participating with us in communion. Hey, as you go into your week this week, try to look at the world through a good eye, okay? Try to look at the world graciously, uh, with generosity. Uh, Try to encourage one another. Try to look uh, with love at those around you. Look through the lens of communion. Look through the gratitude of what Christ has done for you and for us and through the hope of what Christ has promised, the treasures that Christ has promised for those of us who uh, become his disciples. And also, become familiar with how you're shining your light. Get to know how your lamp works. Take control of your lamp. Um, if you have any prayer requests, there will be people up here who are, are uh, waiting to pray for you. Uh, or if you're online, we also have some online prayer options. During the week, we have gathering groups, and you can go to whchurch.org slash bulletin, and you can find how to connect with those gathering groups, and they discuss the sermon, and they go deeper with it. Also, Shauna and I, uh, Shauna is out by the doors. You've seen her out there. Um, she is a, a, uh, a carnival of sunshine, and, uh, and, and I get the pleasure of doing the MuseCast with her every Tuesday, and uh, we talk more about the sermon, and we talk about some personal application. We answer some questions, so join us on YouTube, uh, and that's Tuesday at 4 o'clock Minnesota time. Uh, go and be blessed, and thanks for uh, venturing out here and being with us.